to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I gotta tell you, the gentleman on my show today has so much going on. He has a, a tour about to start. He's recording a new album. He released an album in October. He's got a great nonprofit. He had a collaboration with uh, two legends. And me, this morning, I, I wiped the snow off my car and I was exhausted. I don't know how he does it. My guest is Joe Bonamassa. How you doing, Joe? Uh, I'm doing great, man. How you doing? Do I, I want to start off today with I want to start off about your nonprofit. Um, I know you're you're keeping blues a lot. The blues alive. I grew up in, a, in an area where we had great music and theater in our school, and we were very aware. And I think that's disappeared. Tell me more about that nonprofit. Well, we we started it about twelve, thirteen years ago, and maybe more. And it basically is just it's designed initially was designed to help raise money to fund music in schools. And then in those lost years of 2020 to 2021 and a half, um, we raised over almost a million dollars uh, for musicians in need um, because they couldn't pay their bills. And so we kind of changed the direction of it. And now we do a little bit of both. And, you know, it's one of the things I'm most proud of in my career is the philanthropy and and the, you know giving back. And yeah, we have to we have to promote it to raise money, but we don't do it for self promotion. We do it to promote to try to you know you know raise the, the finances to, to 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 start guitar programs and stuff like that. It's, it, you would think it's a no brainer, but it's not. Um, so I'm very proud of the team that that's worked on that and, uh, very, very happy for the results, obviously. Now, where does that come from? I mean, I, for when you were a kid, did you have a good schooling system and a good music system? I mean, people just don't start a foundation unless they've had a very good experience and they want to give back. I mean, is it something that you started because of experiences you had had? Well, you know, I mean, I grew up, uh, I went to school in the eighties and the early nineties. And there was still music programs in schools. Um, it was, you know, even in our little small, you know, town, there was a, there was music being taught both at a, a at a elementary and a high school level. And you know, a lot of times, and I would travel in the early two thousand. I would travel around to high schools and stuff like that, doing kind of blues in the school things for the foundation blues foundation and what i found was was it wasn't a by by the year 2003 it wasn't it wasn't a foregone conclusion that that there was a um uh you know going to be a music program at all the funding it just got cut and be like well we're not we're we're, we're taking it off the air and um so yeah so you know it's it's something that's that's i'm passionate about and i think it's a good cause i mean i think it's a net positive for kids um, to have some sort of arts in their in their life, whether it be music or or arts, you know, that's that's everything from Broadway to to, to painting and everything else. And if, if our foundation can help fund some of these programs that wouldn't normally end up on the, the cutting room floor, then then uh, then yeah, I'm I'm all in. Now you recently, I mean, you not only got to do a collaboration with. 
Dave Mason. You got to get a collaboration with Peter Frampton. How did they come with that? I mean, that's for me. That's like, that must be for you. That must be so awesome. I mean, one would be great, but you had two. And, you know, we, how, how did those come about? Well, Peter's been a friend for a long time. So is Dave Mason. And kind of just reached out to him and said, hey, like, you know, Dave reached out to me and I reached out to Peter. And it kind of worked out differently. Um, but it's cool, you know. And we, we, we hit some really nice... Uh, uh, songs, you know, um, you know, four day creep, one of my favorite humble pie songs, you know, and feeling all right, you know, and, and, and all this stuff. It, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, or dear Mr. Fantasy. That's what we did. Um, and you know, that was challenging. Um, but also, you know, you get, you're getting to play music with your heroes. I just think it was like a really fun experience. And, uh, and, you know, we made, I think, good new versions of the songs. Now, now, is there an intimidation factor that goes in? I mean, yeah, you're you're a great guitarist. Everyone knows you. But when you sit there and you get to sit down and you're friends with them, but you get to do this recording with someone, as you said, people that, you know, your heroes. What's in your mind when you sit there? Do you sit there and go, man, I don't want to screw this up, even though you know you have the chops. I mean, what goes through your mind when you meet that hero and you have to, you're playing with them? Well, it's, it's a lot more, there's a lot more pressure when you're on stage because you don't get a second take. You know, in the studio, you can do as many takes as you want. Obviously, you want to, like, nail it. But if you don't nail it, then you can do it again, you know? Um, it is intimidating, but it's also, you know, some of the nicest people I've met in this world um, are the most talented. And, like, you know, you could, you, could, you could say that about Peter Frampton and Dave Mason. Now, Blues Deluxe 2 came out in October. It was number one. How do you choose? Because there's 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 originals and covers. How do you choose right. what you are going to put on an album like that? Is it something that you do you think you, what your fans will want to hear, or how do you choose like the mix? Because it's it's very it's very eclectic. Well, it was it was based on the ratio of the first album, the first blues deluxe. So it was a mixture of covers and originals, and you know I just wanted to make a good blues record. I also wanted to ask myself, you know, am I Am I good at 45 as I was at 25? And, uh, yeah, I couldn't sing those songs at 25. You know, I could sing them at 45. And it's, you know, because I learned how to sing. And it's also because I worked on my voice and I, and I learned how to sing and I learned how to be that, that, that you know, a, a, a more sophisticated. I mean, Blues Lux Volume 1 is nothing but just bash out three-piece, shout and key kind of stuff um and people like that it's one of my most popular records um the blues are like a little more sophisticated it's got horns it's got bvs uh songs that are more melodic um and i and, it, and that's stuff that we i don't think i could have tackled when i was 25 you know now, how, how have you grown as a musician like how how do you do you, do you have stages where you've seen like you said 20 years ago you couldn't sign that because you've learned to sing but was there just natural incremental stages that you noticed things are changing a little bit well, yeah. I mean, your your voice gets different. Um, your phrasing gets better. Um, it's, you know, when you're on your second set of 10,000 hours, you know, you spend, you know, your childhood and all of your 20s into your early 30s working on the 10,000 hour concept. And then when you turn 35, you're like, oh, I, I, have already, I, I just, I, the, the meter ran over and now we're back at zero and then like we're on my second set of 10,000 hours. So it's like, you know, I mean, and, you know, I'm well 
on my way to 20,000, you know? And it, that's the thing. It's like if you, you have experienced on stage and off in the studio knowing what you want, knowing what you can pull off, with knowing what you can't pull off, those are the things that, that you don't have when you're in your 20s. In your 20s, you're just throwing anything against the wall trying to trying to make it cohesive. But, you know, you really start getting good when you're like 35 to 40 and and in season. And, and that's, you know, all the greats had went through that. And, and you know, in my personal experience, they're like, you know, I'm not in a hurry anymore to do things, you know, musically. It's 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 a little bit I'm a little bit more patient with what I do. Now, how has your writing process changed? Because, you know, I, I, I used to be a professional stand-up comic, and I occasionally do shows, and I have one coming up next week. And for me, my writing process is completely different. I just, I found out, you know, as you said, we grow. I mean, when I was 26 doing comedy, I'm different than now, 59. And I just learned that I have an instinct of what will work. You know, before I was like, oh, yeah. it was experimenting. How has your writing, how has your writing style changed over the years? Um, well, it's gotten more melodic than it, it used to be. Um, and, you know, just like comedy, it's knowing, well, you go, this will work. I've been here before. I, I, I This will work, you know. And I know what my fans like and I know what my fans don't like. And it's, for me, it's it's a... It's, it's it's just more of the experimental process. I'm like, you know, I'm not going to turn around and be like, well, I'm just going to do folk music now. It's like, no, they 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 they, they want to hear a guitar solo. They they, they want to hear some heavy blues riff. Okay, that's I, I know what that I, I know what they want, and I'm happy to give it to them. You know what I mean? It's like I'm not one of those artists where like, man, you know, I want to be typecast. I'm like, typecast me all day long. You know, you know, because. Because typecast and style are the same thing. And, you know, I, I find it very interesting, you know, that people run from their own legacy or their own sound. And it's like, uh, I'm not that person. Like, I, I know what the audience wants. And, and, and I'm not looking to cross genres. I'm not looking to be anything other than who I am now. And that's it until this thing runs out of steam. And <laughs> then who cares? What what attracted you to the blues? Because you know it's it's you know you're a guy from New York. You don't think of the blues, and you're you were young when you started playing the blues. I mean, was it just did you hear the blues one day and it hit you in a certain spot, or what attracted you to the blues? Because you don't hear a lot of younger guys, you know, hitting the blues as much as as you would. You well, think you would? Well, I mean, it's just it's the same same logic as like you know what 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 put a violin in Joshua Bell's hand. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, you know, why does, you know, Usher sing R&B pop? You know, it's like something binary must be attracting these people other than the money to the music, you know, because uh, it's not always about the money. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's like when you're, you're coming up, as you know, as a, as a comedian, you're not make you're not, you're not living high on the hog and you're doing it for the love of it. And you always have to remember that that's that's why we, we all started in our bedrooms. We all started writing jokes, playing guitar, you know, a certain style, you know, whatever. 
And it's that passion, it's that pilot light that keeps going. And, you know, if you lose, if you lose sight of the, the reason why you do it, and if it becomes too much about lifestyle, and it becomes too much about, you know, just, you know, doing it for other reasons than just keeping the fire going, then, you know, maybe it's time to, you know, think about the farewell tour. And uh, so for me, the blues has always been something that when I hear or play, I, the pilot light immediately ignites and they're like, yeah, that's, that's my happy spot. Now, who, who were some of your, Earl, when you were younger, who were some of your influences that really shaped you? Like, who did you sit there and want to say, emulate? like for me, you know, I like Woody Allen. I loved his stand-up and I would hear, you know, Carlin, the wordplay. So I, I you don't know, emulate them. And I think when we're younger, we do we find traces of them in us. And then when we get older, we go, Oh, you know what? I, I wasn't trying to steal his act. I just, you know, it was, I looked up to him. Who are some people that you looked up to when you were younger? Well, it's like, you know, it's like authors who start by plagiarizing the first paragraph of their favorite book. And then next thing you know, they, they, they're writing something, you know, totally original. Then they go back and change the first paragraph. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, I mean, my influences were Clapton, Jeff Beck group, Rory Gallagher, B.B. Uh, King, um, Free, uh, you know, Albert King, Freddie King. Um, and, you know, I mean, I loved, like, the blues that was coming out of the East Coast in the 80s, you know, the, the Roomful Blues, Ronnie Earl, um, Duke Robillard, those kind of cats. And, uh, you know, I got to meet a lot of them, you know, coming up. Albert Collins, met him, played with him. So, you know, I was so, I was a sponge, a musical sponge, and I still am, you know. I was just soaking it all in, you know. But back in the, my day, and I sound like an old man now, is the records were believable and they were obtainable. And I'll define that. The records were believable because I know when I put on, you know, Ice Picking from Albert Collins, he played and sang every note on that record it was recording of a performance um and they were obtainable meaning that you could hear like it was just oh there's an organ and a bass and a few overdubs maybe some horns okay and they were obtainable because it was like okay I, I i can close my eyes and picture a band playing this on stage records as they progressed and this is the technology has progressed um i don't find them as obtainable and I don't find them as believable. And that's the one thing I try to make sure that no matter what we do, especially on Blues Voice Volume 2, no matter what we do, it's got to be believable. It's like, yeah, I can hear Joe playing that shit and, 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 and you know, singing that live, you know? Not, you know, a layer cake of, of, of overdubs or, or things that, that couldn't be done by humanoids. And I think that's why people always look back on records now with, 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 you know, joyful, uh, you know, it's a, a joyful reminiscing is because it's like, man, there wasn't much to this. It's like an old car, you know, there wasn't much to this, but it's charming and, and human. And I think the further, the deeper we get into the technology, especially now with AI, um, it's, you're really going to run the risk of, of going, I don't even know if a human being was involved in this recording other than just going, you know, 
you know, Siri, you know, write me a blues song. You know what I mean? It's like, and then you, it, it, I mean, that's, that's where, that's where it's heading. Oh yeah. I, I see, I see people put posts sometimes like on business things and then they, you know, it's AI. I'm like, well, how are you trying to convey your message that you're some kind of business coach or whatever? When, when you didn't even write what you're trying to convey. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, it's, I, you know, I'm old enough to remember, you know, uh, the, the, the business life coach, Charles Carras. and Charles Carras always had a, I always had a budget to spend on marketing because he would he would take the center section of every airline magazine from U.S. Air to Delta to United. So it was like you're flipping through the the, the the you know interest stories. Go Niagara Falls, not just the falls. You know, it's like you know, like and then you know they do 1,200 words of puff piece about like you know, visit the while you're in Buffalo, visit the Anchor Bar where the Buffalo Wild Wing was. You know, and then the middle section of it was you know like. You always get what you negotiate, Charles Carras, and you know it was written in words that people could understand, not like word salad. And and I, I you know, it's I think it's important to have a good, you know, diverse vocabulary. But some of the stuff that AI is coming up with, it's like it's like it, you've said a lot of words, but didn't say anything, <laughs> you know. And and people are starting to speak like that. And, and it's like, I'm like, and you just want to go to them, you're like, are you snorting Adderall? I mean, like, <laughs> stop. Just layman's terms, man. Right. You know, like, we, we, we all know you have a, a, an accredited degree from a, 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 an Ivy League university. You don't have, to, don't have to wear that on your wrist like a Rolex. You know? <laughs> now, I have to ask you this. You, know, you, you're, you just recorded, the, you're, you're in the studio, um, you're going to go on tour. Do you still take time? Because I know you have to. Do you ever? Do you still take time to sit down and practice? Like I mean, I know because you get you get the you keep your muscles strong by being in the studio or touring. But do you ever sit down and just pick up your guitar and practice, or is that something that you it it's something that you you like you said logged so many hours that you're actually getting firsthand? Yeah, you know, very rarely do I just sit sit at home and just jam mindlessly without a, without a without a goal or a, or a reason to you know it's like you know like like this week we're rehearsing for the tour um so i'm gonna have to i'm gonna sit here and put a, you know hook up an amplifier and and sing some songs and dust off the cobwebs and uh um yeah but as far as practicing i practice at rehearsal and i practice on the gigs or sound check you know because by the time i get through the first two shows then i'm gig ready then then you, then we can i can really play you know it takes a minute and it you could rehearse for two weeks and it, and it yields the same results as rehearsing for three days and one show is like 10 rehearsals all at once it's once you do it in anger once you're up there you know it's it's like you know again you could you could do your routine in front of a mirror but once you get people in front of you it's a whole different it's a whole different equation you know and and you're you're seeing things in slow motion in real time as well you know just like 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 when you know i know when like i like break a string you know and i and i have to switch guitars mid song it seems like it's 10 minutes but if you if i've ever watched like if you ever watched a video of a, a broken string you know at one of my gigs or somebody else's in the in the, the swap it's like it's two blinks of an eye and you're back 
up and running. But to the performer, it seems like 20 minutes or 10 minutes. And it's like the longest pause. And, and you, you all, think, and oh, you, so, and, and it's just, yeah, I mean, you, you, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, because you always and you always dwell on it. Like me, if 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 you if I was doing a bit and and it didn't get a laugh, I would dwell on that little bit that didn't get a laugh. And I'm like, but I had a good set. But you you get that dwell, like, and you're right. It is like slow motion when you're not getting a laugh. You're like, holy crap! Like, this is like three minutes. I mean, I'm, I'm just they, they hate me. Yeah, and, and 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 part of the experience on stage is fighting your way out of that those situations. You don't learn much on a performance of any kind by when everything goes right and you get ten standing ovations and they're throwing roses at you and and the mayor pops up out of the out of his front row seat, stops the show and gives you a key to the city. When that when those gigs happen, you just come off stage going, of course, and you start patting yourself on the back and and everybody's arms get longer and they're, you know, and you learn nothing from those gigs because of course it's the way it's supposed to go down because that's the way we designed it. Well, it's the gigs that go wrong and the gigs that like the songs that lay flat, the jokes that don't, don't work problems. That's when you really earn your money. That's when you, it's like, okay, calm and, and just confidence in what you're doing. Like we, we will skate out of this. It may not be our best, moment but it will not be our worst and understanding the difference between your worst and your best is maybe 10 percent. that's also part of the factor you know there's nothing that i you know my worst gig and my best gig is about six to seven clicks it's just like oh he was on tonight oh he was really he was off tonight but then you listen back to it it's about the same you know like maybe maybe i lacked a little energy or i flubbed a couple of notes but nothing tragic's gonna happen you know like nothing you know like oh my god i forgot how to sing or i forgot how to play you know um none of that's gonna happen so so you have a reasonable expectation of of a of of an outcome and that's that's experience now in your career though and thinking back in your career have you is there like one hell gig that any age that stands out to you that you look back and go oh my god that was a nightmare because I think everyone has had that one gig. It's usually when you're younger, but is there anything that sticks out to you? Well, yeah. I mean, Memphis in the year 2000. It was We had just finished opening up for Jethro Tull as my first solo tour on EM, uh, Epic Records. And uh, so, okay, fine. The training wheels come off, and uh, you're on your own, kid. We show up to Memphis on a rainy Tuesday night in, at the end of August, and I'm playing $8 for the door. And, and I received on that evening what they call the golden goose when you're playing for the door and nobody shows up and you gross zero dollars. So that, that's when you go, maybe I should look at those DeVry brochures that my parents keep, keep putting in the Christmas gifts, you know. Um, but that takes a fortitude and a tenacity. You, you cannot let the set there's, in anybody's life. In anybody's career of anything that you do, there are setbacks. There's no this notion of like you know this 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 um, you know this notion that that some people in the younger generation like younger generations who I've met plenty of brilliantly wonderfully talented young people, but there is a certain quotient of them that that don't want to hear the hard truths about their talent or about their act or maybe how what they can improve and and. Those, that, those people that come up to you, okay, 
And, and maybe after a gig in Memphis when nobody shows up and says, hey, listen, you know, there's a reason why there's nobody here tonight. So give them a reason to, to have somebody here, you know, and it's, you're not entitled to any of it. It's for you, you. The world is yours to go out and, and take what you want and be nice about it. But also you have to have the tenacity and the fortitude to, to, to shrug it all off. Listen to the, your trusted people that have your best interest in mind, but also listen to your heart and be like, nope, I'm going to do this and I'm going to fight my way up the ladder. And, and sometimes the, sometimes you start on the ground. You don't start halfway up the ladder. You start on the ground level. Well, you know, talking about gigs, you, you played the Hollywood Bowl. And uh, yeah. what was like? I lived in L.A. for 15 years. And when, and when you would go to see a show at the Hollywood Bowl, there's just a feel. You know, there's just that that yeah. that feel. What was that like for you? Because you played with an orchestra. I mean, was that something yeah. that, first of all, how do you acclimate? To, was that your first time playing with an orchestra? Or how do you acclimate? Yeah, it was the first time. Yeah, first so, time at the bowl, first time at the orchestra. So what was that experience um, like? Because I can imagine you going with the orchestra and you, I'm walking backstage and must have been like, holy shit, this is, this is a Hollywood Bowl. Well, I, I could tell you this: when you take when you take music musicians whose um, school of approach are diametrically opposed to each other and shove them all on stage, it's a stressful evening. Orchestras don't improv. David Campbell doesn't improv. All I do is improv, and so if. They wrote the score to a live track, and on that particular evening, because they wrote the scores to pre-existing live arrangements, which just came from board tapes or whatever, and I approved them. But I never realized that, like, oh, on certain evenings, I'll take a 20-bar solo. I don't know why. It should be 24, but I just I just throw my, hand, my arm up, and we're moving on. You know? The seven-piece can pivot real easy. The 12 piece even pivots real easy. Okay, we're moving on. Old school, BB King stuff. The orchestra doesn't move on. The orchestra will, they are, they are as magnificent as they are fearless musically in the sense that they will run off a cliff because that's what says, because it says, if it says run off the cliff on the chart, train wreck ahead, they're going to go. And they're going to run right off the cliff. So it was stressful having to have a keen mind's eye on where everything lined up and how we, we, we pulled it off. But everybody was exhausted by the end of that run because it was so intense concentration-wise while you're on stage. And, you know, it's it's... And very, very, it was very, very difficult, very challenging. I'm so glad I did it, so honored. And David Campbell did a wonderful job. He just did a wonderful job. And a lot of, a lot of people did a wonderful job. You know, Kevin Shirley and Trevor Rabin and Jeff Bova. You know, to marry, you know, to marry the two worlds is difficult to say the least. Whose idea was it? I mean, it's just, it was, was it something that you had wanted to do or you got approached? Or? I wanted to do it. Yeah, originally we were supposed to do it at Red Rocks in 2020, and we were going to have the scores written and do it with the Colorado Symphony, and that obviously didn't happen. And then we had this project on the back burner for three and a half years, and then had this opportunity to do the Hollywood Bowl. I'm like, let's do the Hollywood Bowl. 
L.A. Phil, baby. Pandemic. Because, you know, you're a guy who loves a live stage. How did, how did that affect you? Did you write? Did you Were you more creative? Or did you miss that, that energy? I wrote a record for Eric Gales. Um, uh, helped him write the record. Uh, and produced that in August of 2020. And it got nominated for a Grammy. Um, and, but as far as my own stuff, I didn't do it. And like, I was like, not in the mood, you know? Um, you know, I mean, it, 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 I, I get, I get why people do what they do. And I, and I get it. We, we live in a TikTok world, but I wasn't interested in, you know, like, you know, cause a lot, a lot of the trend was like interesting covers done by your favorite artists in their pajamas in their basement. <laughs> I don't want to do that. It's not doing it. Now, now you're excited for the tour coming up. It starts. Uh, it starts next week. It starts the the nineteenth. Yeah, so, so when you go on, when do you create your set list? When is that all? You know, do you do that before? Do that night of? Or it's. It, I, I have a grid. I have a apex curves. You know what I mean? It's and you just fill in the blanks. You got you need peaks and valleys. You need the moment of truth, and you need the hits. And that's it. Um, so I, I have the eight, I have the grid mapped out, and I don't like leaving things to chance. I don't like. I'm not one of those guys. Who's like I don't feel. Oh, what do you feel like playing? I'm not doing it in front of ten thousand. No, it's not doing. It. That's disrespectful. You know what I mean? I, it's like it, we, we, you come see a slick, well-produced show. You know, and there's there's. You know, there's improv within the within the songs. Certain things go long, certain things go short. That's fun. That's the fun for the audience and for us. But as far as me going, well, I don't feel like, oh, you know, there's some people say, I don't write set lists. Well, okay, you're just going to go up there and play? <laughs> I I need to tell the light guy something. Right. You but, know? Now, do you have... You got to give the front house guy a heads up on solo. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like it's—it's it's not as it, it, that's an approach. That's just not my approach. Now, when you go into a solo, is it different every night, or is it, or you just feel, it or do you feel the audience? How do you, if you have it set? In, in theory, you'd want it to be different every night, but you, you know, as the tour grinds on, you, you start seeing some deer trails show up. Like, okay, I, I was here, and then, uh, you know, and then you get some cues on the on the bailout, and it's yeah, it's. You see some deer trails. The, the, the most the most unique solos I play on all of the songs are at rehearsal because I forgot what I did. I forgot where I left off. And then eventually, three days in, it's like, oh, okay, this is where we were. I have one more question and because uh, I know you're short on time. You have to tell me a little about your guitar collection. I was telling my buddy, he's a guitarist in LA, he said you're on it. He goes, oh my God, his first thing was, he has the best guitar collection in him. When did you start doing this? And tell me, how many pieces do you have and do you have a favorite? I have over 1,100 pieces. Um, that's guitars and amps. Um, uh, long and short of it is I started collecting as soon as I made some money it played, you know, doing my first gigs when I was 11 years old. Um, and it was a lot cheaper back then than it is now. But, you know, I've always had a, I've always had the collecting bug. I've always liked it, you know. 
Um, did I ever think by the time I, you know, turned 47 in May, I mean, I think by the time I was 47, I'd be one of the biggest guitar collectors in the world. No. Um, but that's addiction. And those are other issues that needed to be, need to be addressed. Um, and no, it's, it, it's, you know, I, I, it's all going to go to somebody else one day. It's all going to go to somebody And, uh, and I'm just here to be a custodian of what I think is manufacturing and design that really represents what, how great this country can be. Like I can pull a guitar off the wall. I'm here in Nashville. I can pull a guitar off the wall. Every screw, every nut, bolt, piece of wood, everything was built here and designed here. And it was like, yeah. And it was like, and I collected guitars, solid body electrics from about 1950 to 1964 or five. And that 15 year period changed the world. They made thousands and thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of guitars that all seem to be just as relevant now as they were 70 years ago, 74 years ago. You know what I mean? And I don't know of any industry or any thing that kind of works like that. Like, like GM doesn't build a 59 Cadillac as their core business, but part of Gibson's core business is building a replica of the 59 Les Paul. And, and people are still chasing that. And there was just something that cool that happened in those 15 years between Leo Fender and Ted McCarty and others that, that, that got in the game, Jim Marshall and Ken Jennings and all those guys. Um, and, uh, like, they built something very, very special that's still relevant today, that could be used today on stage to make new music, modern music, not just, you know, not just blues and old-timey rock. It's like Post Malone has vintage guitars, and he's making relevant pop music. And so that's why I collect them. Um, do I need anything? Absolutely not. But that doesn't stop me. Do you, how many you? How many guitars do you tour with when you go out on the road? How many guitars do you take? We usually start with a dozen, and then the and then the and then the buying starts, and then and then I end up coming back with twenty, twenty five. <laughs> um, it, it just depends. I mean, stuff finds me. You know, it's like people are like, well, how do you find all this? Stuff? I'm like, listen, man, you gotta you gotta hunt the first few down. But once once you do that, you'd be surprised what comes to you. You know, do you I just want to see that. a lot of people with family heirlooms because I don't do eBay, I don't do this, so you know, I don't do whatever. Um, I don't do online because that's like fishing in a trout pond. You know, I'm I, I'd rather be in the waders out in the stream, freezing my ass off, catching nothing. But when you do catch something, it's nobody's ever seen it before. That's that's my thing. Do you still have your first guitar? No, I had my first draft, but I don't have my first guitar. I mean, we were lower middle class when I grew up and uh, we had to, you know, we had to, uh, if I wanted another one, I'd have to sell this one, trade it in. Boom, boom. This has been awesome, man. I'm glad I'm doing the tour. You're, not, are you, are you, you have, you're going, you have this tour, then you're going to the cruise, then you're going to Europe and then you're sure. coming yeah. back to tour. 
does it get t- does it get tired to you at all? Does your as you get older, does your body start feeling the wear? Not really. You know, we're not at the super eights anymore, so we we roll pretty heavy. Um, it's fun. It's 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 a new adventure every day. If I make a bad record, it's out there forever. If I make a bad show, I have a chance to redeem myself the next night. That's what I love about tour. Is it starts at zero. Your greatest night, your worst night. Every, next day you wake up, you shake it off and move on. Well, I want to thank you for coming on, people. Uh, people, uh, Joe. People, go to his website, uh, jbonamassa dot com. You get all the info. You can buy his album there. You can uh, you can see all his tour dates. Go see him. Uh, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over nine hundred and ninety five episodes on there. Email me at cooper coopertalk.net. Twitter I'm at coopertalk. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget to drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time.